This is Anton Hellman for the EM Cases podcast, episode 141, COVID-19 Epidemiology and Prediction Models. I want you to think of a time when you had a challenging case and your team came through for you and you were high-fiving afterwards. Now take that feeling and multiply it by 100. That's where we're going to be at the end of this. Yes, we're all scared, and that's okay. That's what's called being human. Yes, I've shared a tear or two in my wife's arms, and that's okay too. And yes, there are huge challenges ahead. But who better is there to rise to those challenges than emergency providers? I mean, we see blood and guts and pain and suffering all the time, yet we're able to combine our skills, our intelligence, and our compassion to not only adapt, but to kick ass. And that's what we're going to do in this COVID era. We're going to train like crazy to perform protected intubations so that no one in the room gets sick. We're going to educate ourselves about COVID so that we have the confidence in our decisions. We're going to be leaders in our communities to keep the public safe. We're going to tell every patient and every colleague that we're there for them. We're going to dig deep into why we became emergency providers in the first place and muster up every bit of courage we have to do great work. We can get through this together. I know we can. We will get through this together. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases podcast with your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. We've got a COVID-19 resources section on the EM Cases website homepage where you can access all the COVID podcasts, guidelines, summaries, and weekly updates. In this COVID series of main episode podcast, part five, we have an epidemiologist from the University of Toronto, Ashley Chute, who will help us understand more about the factors that help predict where we're going with this pandemic and how we might prevent huge spikes in illness. It's my hope that by the end of the podcast, you'll feel a bit less anxious knowing a bit more about what we're facing. But before we do, I need to make a correction to something that we mentioned in the PPE podcast. That was part three of the COVID series. Thanks to Dr. Andrew Arkand and Justin Morganson for bringing this to our attention. When it comes to what level of protection different gowns provide, we had said that all gowns that you can see through are level one and are not protective against COVID virus. It turns out that some of those porous see-through gowns are actually level two, which means that they are somewhat protective. So the bottom line is check what level your gowns are. If they are level two or higher, you're good to go. For more details on that, go to the show notes for the PPE podcast where we updated the gowns section. It's my pleasure to welcome to Emergency Medicine Cases, Ashley Chute, an epidemiologist from the University of Toronto, to give us her take on the epidemiological factors in the current COVID pandemic. Dr. Chute, welcome to EM Cases. And if you could just give our listeners a little description of your professional background, that would be great. Thank you very much for having me. So as you said, I am an epidemiologist. My training is infectious disease epidemiology and mathematical modeling. And I have been working in the area for about a decade, looking at how we can use mathematical models as a tool to understand how diseases spread in populations. Fantastic. 
I'm sure the EM Cases audience is eager to hear your prediction models, um, but I want to start with what the factors are in predicting the spread of COVID-19 virus. So what are the kinds of things that you look at when you're coming up with these prediction models to help you figure out how this virus is going to spread? So one of the things that is kind of interesting about studying how infectious diseases spread in populations is that as unique and sometimes terrifying an infectious disease is, there are some fundamental properties that every disease has. And so that's why mathematical modeling in particular is is a tool that we can apply early on during an emerging infectious disease outbreak, because we know that there are certain characteristics that really determine you know, how bad an outbreak is going to be, um, even if it's if it's a new pathogen. And so some of those characteristics are something that's called the basic reproduction number. And that's, you may have heard of because a lot of people are talking about it in the news. It's also sometimes referred to as R0. And basically what that is, is that's a number that tells you on average how many cases each old case makes in a completely susceptible population. And that is a measure of effectively the transmissibility of a disease. So if you have a higher reproductive number, that means that on average, each old case is making more new cases and the disease is going to spread much more quickly in the population. So a disease like measles has an R0 of around 15. So that means that, you know, each old case is making 15 new cases. Each of those 15 cases are making 15 new cases and you, if you have exponential growth and you have a completely susceptible population, that can make a very large outbreak very fast. Um, in the case of coronavirus, we have estimates of the R0 of between two and three. So that means that on average, each old case is making two new cases, which is still enough to cause a fairly explosive epidemic as we're currently experiencing. Among the other characteristics that determine both sort of the extent of spread as well as how how it's going to affect the population. We're interested in knowing basically how long someone's, someone is infectious for. One of the things that we're interested in and don't really have a fantastic handle on right now is the role of subclinical or asymptomatic infections. So one of the cornerstones of a public health response is identifying people who are infected with the disease and isolating them so that they can't infect other people. And if you have asymptomatic or very mildly symptomatic people who are still able to spread infection, that makes it quite difficult to control. And that's something that we're still grappling with in the case of coronavirus. All right. So you've got R0, which that sounds like a pretty straightforward concept, and the R0 for uh, coronavirus or the COVID-19 illness is uh, about two, uh, which just compared to other viruses out there, how does that compare, say, to the flu virus? You mentioned measles was 15. Mm-hmm. Um, how does it compare to, I think influenza is, is a nice comparison for emergency providers to understand because we do take care of a lot of patients who present with influenza. How does that R0 of 2 compare to influenza, for example? So so an R0 of 2 is not that much higher than the R0 for influenza, which we think is around 1.5. So it's a little bit lower than for coronavirus. But the other thing that's really important to note for influenza is that we don't have a completely susceptible population. 
So seasonal flu comes every year. And because of that, we have a a proportion of the population who are protected from getting infected just because they've been infected the year or two before. And we also have vaccine. So even if we have an imperfect vaccine, we still do not have a completely susceptible population. Um, So when we have influenza pandemics, um, as we had, for example, in 2009 with H1N1, that was an example of a disease where, again, we didn't have a completely susceptible population because older people in the population had been previously exposed to a related H1N1 strain. But, you know, in in those situations, we see something that's closer to the higher range of what we think the reproductive number is for influenza. I would say it and coronavirus are similar, but the big, big difference is the fact that we're looking at a completely susceptible population with coronavirus. Okay. The second thing that you had mentioned was how long people are infected for. And do we have a good idea of that with coronavirus? We don't have a fantastic idea. Um, I I mean, we have a general sense in terms of, you know, how long people are symptomatic for. There have been some studies looking at viral shedding. I think the challenge with the duration of infectiousness is, you know, if if you're sampling people just because you're isolating virus doesn't necessarily mean that it's viable. Um, and, and that also relates to, you know, there have been several studies that have been identifying virus on surfaces, and there's concern about, you know, how long does the virus survive on surfaces? And I think that's another unknown. In general, we know that the average time between someone developing symptoms and then the people who they go on to infect developing s- symptoms is pretty short. It's about you know, somewhere between five and 10 days. And so so that suggests that there's a lot of infection that's happening fairly quickly. So I suspect that seven days-ish is probably about right. And, you know, part of that also relates to the fact that, you know, if you have a severe infection, your infection is probably being recognized. And then you're, you know, if you go to hospital or you self-isolate, you're interrupting transmission ideally. But I think it's one of many pieces of information that we have a general sense of what it is, but I suspect over the coming weeks and months, we'll have a clearer picture exactly of what that um, infectious period looks like. All right. So that's a little bit about the factors that can predict the spread of the virus. The next question is, how likely is it that the virus will mutate? And if it does, what are the most likely consequences of that? So I am not a virologist, and I, I will I will tell you my understanding of this. And this is very heavily informed by um, someone named Trevor Bedford, who is a scientist at the Fred Hutchison Research Center in Seattle. And he does a lot of phylodynamic analyses, and he has a platform called NextStrain, which is available online that's really doing real-time analyses of of isolated virus and trying to understand how it's evolving over time. And he's done a bit of work around this question around mutation. So um, SARS-CoV, the virus that is causing COVID-19, is an RNA virus. And so flu is also an RNA virus. So I think a lot of the analogy comes by comparing what we know about flu, again, because we're still learning about this new virus. Um, But one of the things that we know about RNA viruses is that when they replicate in in our bodies, 
the replication process is very error prone. So we do tend to get mutations. And in the case of flu, if you look at it as it spreads from one person to the other and you do these sort of phylodynamic and phylogenetic analyses, uh, there are estimates that there's a mutation about once every 10 days. So, so that's a pretty high rate of mutation. And for SARS-CoV, it seems like the mutation rate is a little bit less fast. So I think the last time I checked, the estimates were around one or two mutations per month. So that's a bit slower than flu, but it still is a pretty rapid rate of accumulation of mutations. Um, the thing that's really important to note is that most of these mutations are not going to affect how the virus behaves. So they're basically going to be neutral. Some of them will break the virus. So it's going to do something to the virus. The virus is no longer viable and it will basically, evolution will get rid of it. And then there are potentially mutations that will make the virus replicate better. But again, those are going to be fairly rare. And so in the case of flu, one of the sort of key drivers of evolution is immunity. So we know that in the case of flu, there are mutations that appear that that basically causes the flu virus to evade our immune system. So we know, for example, with flu, every year we have a new vaccine that needs to be updated. And the reason that needs to be updated is because of basically this, this drift in terms of the virus. It, it acquires mutations that make our immune systems no longer recognize it. And in turn, we have to update our vaccines so that we can be protected against these, these drifted viruses. The important thing to note is that, you know, we're not talking about these mutations happening over the course of weeks. We're talking about years. And so the hope is that assuming that coronavirus is behaves similarly to flu, which, you know, at this point, that's sort of the best analogy that we can make. We expect that there probably will be something similar where, you know, you may see this drift in terms of the proteins that our immune system is using to mount an immune response against. But we don't think that this is going to happen, you know, over the next couple of weeks. And so hopefully it will be stable enough that we can, you know, over the coming months. But the hope and at this point, the current understanding of how quickly the mutations are acquired suggests that it's stable enough that we should be able to develop a vaccine. And I think, and I think that's probably the biggest concern. The other concern probably relates to, you know, is this going to mutate into something that is is more virulent? And again, at this point, it's unknowable. But in general, there seems to be a bit of a balance in terms of, you know, if you have a, a virus that's incredibly virulent and kills people very quickly, they they tend to not survive just because you you want something that's a little bit more transmissible. And again, I realize I'm anthropomorphizing a virus, but but there tends to be a little bit of a selective pressure in terms of of what can spread quickly through the population. And something that is, is highly, highly virulent tends to not sort of meet that sweet spot, which at this point, I think coronavirus seems to have, have found. All right. So the bottom line there is that the virus will likely be stable over the next few months. It's unlikely to mutate into a more virulent and deadly virus, thankfully. And that, yeah, and that likely will be able to develop an effective vaccine. And now for a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. 
Metricade would like to let you know that they are helping EDs, urgent care clinics, and other provider groups during the COVID-19 pandemic. They've been helping their existing customers set up additional call schedules and screening clinics. They're also working on setting up province-wide virtual walk-in clinics, which will go live on March 30th. And they're doing this for free during the outbreak. Metricade's giving these organizations access to their web-based tool, but more importantly, they're doing all the work building and managing these schedules, helping to build capacity and resilience in our system, doing what they do best. If you're struggling with the logistics of adding coverage to your existing schedule, or you're setting up completely new schedules for screening or treatment, let them help you out. They can get a new schedule up and running in a matter of days, leaving you to take care of other matters. Metricade really wants to help you out during this crisis. Let them give you a hand. Check out metricade.com slash emcases and get in touch with them today. I just want to clarify first, your prediction models, are they restricted to Canada or North America or globally? Yes. So so we've really been focusing at this point on the population of Ontario, just given that that's where I live and where my collaborators live and, there, and there's been a need for that. But I would say that the insights that we're deriving from our models are, are fairly widely applicable. The population structure is a little bit different, but um, there are groups that are doing this all over the world. And I think one of the things that's been very interesting is that the the inferences and this sort of broader brushstroke findings seem to be fairly consistent. All right, great. So in other words, your prediction model may be applicable to other jurisdictions, other areas around the world. That being said, what we're about to talk about really does pertain only to Ontario. So just to for listeners to keep that in mind. So what everyone's been waiting for, what so far have your prediction models shown? So I'm a little bit hesitant to call it a prediction model um, because at this point we haven't really um, one of one of the really important parts when you're developing a model is to fit it to data. And in Ontario at this point, we have fairly limited data. Fortunately, the number of severe cases that we have is relatively small compared to other places. And so what we've been modeling is a little bit more of a hypothetical scenario where, you know, given where we think we are today in terms of the epidemic curve, we've been looking a little bit more at policy options. So trying to understand what would happen in the province if we were to basically have fairly limited testing and isolation of cases and small amounts of quarantine, which we would consider our worst case scenario, and then compare that to scenarios where we do what in Ontario we're doing right now, which is having pretty active social distancing measures in place. We unfortunately got some horrible noise in the audio at this point, so I'll just summarize what she says over the next few minutes, which is, in the worst case scenario, her model would predict that 50 to 70% of the population of Ontario would be infected with SARS-CoV-2 at the end of a two-year period, noting that many of those cases would be asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. But one of the other um, really important outcomes of this worst case scenario is that we find that our healthcare system becomes very, very quickly overwhelmed. 
So one of the model outcomes that we can look at are people who would require a bed in ICU, people who would require a hospital bed in general. And what we find is that, you know, we're talking about 20 times the number of people requiring ICU beds as our best estimates of the current capacity in Ontario. And I I would say that these findings are alarming, but they're also very much aligned with the sorts of findings that other groups are finding in other countries. That's a bit frightening. So the number of ICU beds required in Ontario is probably about 20 times the current capacity, according to your prediction models, yeah? At the peak of the epidemic, in in the worst case scenario where we where we don't do anything. I see. That's in the worst case scenario. And so based on what we are doing with, now you had mentioned limited quarantine versus strict quarantine and limited testing versus pan testing. At this point, we are employing limited testing. I know at our hospital, we're only testing high-risk populations, such as the elderly and uh, prison people from prison and nursing homes, et cetera. However, we have closed down schools, we have closed down restaurants and most workplaces. So understanding that we are doing limited testing and we're doing pretty well on the quarantine part, but not quite as strict as say they were in China, what kind of numbers can you give us in terms of the number of hospital beds required, the number of ICU beds required, et cetera? What we find in the model is that social distancing, it's highly effective for reducing transmission while the measures are in place. The challenge is that once you remove them, assuming that you still have transmission occurring within the community, so you don't, you know, if if you do this for four weeks, for example, as soon as you remove that, you're epidemic essentially returns to where it was before you put those measures in place. So one of the drivers of the basic reproductive number that we were talking about earlier is the number of contacts that a person has per day. And so when we do social distancing, we're reducing the number of contacts you have per day, and that's driving down the reproductive number. But as soon as you return to normal life, you're putting those numbers back up. And so the the reproductive number also increases. And so although social distancing can be highly effective, one of the the challenges is that it needs to be in place for a fairly long time in order to see that flattening of the curve that, you know, we're we're trying to do. And so what what we can show by modeling is that yes, it works and and it it works quite effectively, but we're not talking about a two-week time period. We're talking about a potentially much longer period of time, especially if you're starting, if you're thinking about reducing the case burden that's going to require hospital resources, and you really, really want to flatten that curve, you're talking about potentially, you know, six months or a year of this. For months. Wow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, but I have some less depressing news. Oh, great. So one of the things that we've been looking at, again, in in the modeling realm is recognizing that six months or a year of social distancing is not sustainable. Looking at different types of policy interventions that you could think about. And one is something that's a little bit more dynamic. So what we 
we can potentially do is basically dial things up and down based on what we see happening. So um, in our model, what we use as a, as a trigger for social distancing is ICU bed capacity. So once we see our ICUs starting to fill up, we can say, well, we need to increase social distancing and have people do what they're doing now and stay home and work remotely. And when we see things starting to improve, we can potentially relax those. So basically not necessarily go back to life as usual, but life a little bit more as usual than we're currently living it and basically have something that's a bit more responsive. And so depending on how things are going, we can move those response measures up and down. In terms of how that looks in real life, I think that you know we can look to other countries. Every country that is dealing with coronavirus epidemics are dealing with them in very different ways. So Singapore is an example of a country where their, their emphasis has really, really been on testing and isolating cases, um, quarantine. And they've definitely changed the way that their society works. They've definitely, you know, canceled mass gatherings and large group meetups, but their, their schools are still happening. They're sort of dealing with this in a different way. And I think here at the current point in time, our testing is not at the level where where we can dial back the social distancing. But I think the the thing with social distancing is, you know, we slow transmission, we flatten the curve, and that buys us time. So the peak is pushed forward for the epidemic. It gives us time to build lab capacity. It gives, gives us time to figure out how do we deal with people coming to the hospital that we currently maybe can't accommodate, you know, gives us time to buy more ventilators. It's very hard, I think, at the current point in time to say, this is what the world is going to look like in the next month or two. I think we're we're learning and we're getting a sense of what works and what doesn't. And, you know, the healthcare aspect of this is just one piece of the question. We also have to think about, you know, our society and the, our economy. And so, so there's going to be a bit of a balance there. And I'm not a policy person, so this is not my realm. But I think the news around social distancing and the idea that, you know, we're talking about disruptions for long periods of time shouldn't be taken, you know, as what what we're living right now is going to be what we're going to be living for the next year. I think we're going to figure this out and strike some sort of balance between all of the different public health tools that we have at hand. All right. So it sounds like the social distancing is of utmost importance right now and that that's going to buy us time to then produce the limited resources that we have now, more swabs so we can do more testing more PPE, more ventilators, more ICU beds. And hopefully, if everyone abides by the social distancing, we can then relax the social distancing a little bit as we get more resources produced. And hopefully, rather than this lasting for six to 12 months of social distancing, we can strike a balance somewhere and hopefully get this thing over with. Exactly. That's the hope. Okay. Two very specific questions that I still have are, one is, is there likely to be a second peak in Canada? 
So we're now bracing for the first big peak, which is very likely to happen. So the question of whether there's going to be a second peak after that. Uh, and then the other question is whether this is likely to be seasonal, uh, like influenza is. Yeah. And I think those two questions are, are very related. So in terms of what's coming, we anticipate, you know, a very large outbreak, assuming that, you know, whether the curve is flattened or not, we're, we're likely going to see a large number of people infected because we have a completely susceptible population. I think the big question is if summer will attenuate the spread. So we know for seasonal flu that it tends to go away with the warmer weather and reemerge in the, in the winter. And so there is some hope. I don't know that there's necessarily a lot of evidence, but there's hope that the warmer weather, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, will result in a reduction of transmission of coronavirus that could potentially give us a bit of a break. If that were to happen, we, we saw that with the 2009 H1N1 pandemic where it emerged in the springtime and then went away over the summer and then re returned in the fall. So that that's potentially a thing that could happen with, with coronavirus, in which case we would have you know, multiple waves just caused by that season seasonality. If there isn't a seasonal effect, I think the other big question is the role of immunity. So right now we're really only thinking about a one or two year time horizon. But if like seasonal flu, we see this this viral drift and, you know, people's immunity is not long lasting, it is possible that this could become something like the flu where it returns every year and, and causes smaller outbreaks, but still potentially, you know, mul multiple waves of, of disease. One last question for you in more of a broader sense. Do you have a take-home message for the thousands of ED providers out there? Yeah, <laughs> I, I am optimistic. I, I think I think that that people get this. I think that you know there's a lot of potential frustration in terms of what governments are doing or how we're dealing with this. We we have a sense of what we need to do to bring this under control. We have tools at hand, and it's really just a matter of, of applying them in a way that works for our society. And I think as a community, we've got this. We've got a lot of people from a lot of disciplines working on this, and the coming months will be challenging. But I also think that, you know, based on what we know and based on what we know works, that we are going to be able to get through this and, and come out the other side. Always tells me with the sigh I'm a bird afraid to fly And heaven knows I'm afraid to land